is writing to combat dangerous teaching that has crept up in the church. Paul emphasizes the Christian's union with Christ to answer these attacks against the faith. In in defining union with Christ, one great Reformed theologian defined it as that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. As we consider the implications of our union with Christ, highlighted by Paul in Colossians 3, several themes emerge from the text. Our new mindset, our new relationship to sin, our life in the church, and our life in the daily ordinary life. Let us now read Colossians 3. Please give your full attention. This is God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, if you've been walking with the Lord for any significant amount of time, you've probably heard someone say something to the effect of, well, Christians don't do X, referring to some moral point of view or sin pattern. Many times X isn't, is something that isn't explicitly referenced in Scripture, but it's deduced from the implications of Scripture in light of current cultural pressures or prevalent excesses in the culture around us that we have been providentially placed in. While saying Christians don't do X 
is perhaps a bit reductionistic. As the effects of sins remain present in our own experience on earth, it does reflect an important reality. As Christians united with Christ, our lives have been transformed. Because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, we are united to Christ, and this union transforms every aspect of our lives. This morning, we will explore several of the implications of this union with Christ that Paul highlights in Colossians 3. In the first portion of Colossians 3, we see the emphasis that we are to be eternally minded in our life on earth. Because of our union with Christ, we are to focus on eternity. In some ways, this may be a bit counterintuitive. Shouldn't we be earthly-minded when we are on earth and heavenly-minded when we are in heaven? Paul commands us to set our minds on the things that are above, not the stuff of the earth. We've probably all heard the old adage, he or she is so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. Well, the exact opposite is actually true. It is only the heavenly-minded that are any earthly good. When I've heard this phrase attributed to people that, I'm, that I know, it normally under, misunderstands the earthly and the heavenly. Frequently is referring to a young, immature Christian who is quote-unquote on fire in their faith and still learning how to apply this newfound faith to their daily life. For example, the new Christian that skips Lord's Day worship because their personal devotion time in the morning was so meaningful that they didn't want to stop devotions to head to corporate worship. This would be a misunderstanding of how to apply this newfound faith in our daily life. The Lord uses the everyday, day in, day out circumstances of life, both to sanctify us and as opportunities to glorify Him. The truth is that only the Christian that is focused on furthering the kingdom of heaven is of any earthly good. Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in the kingdom of God and that that citizenship lasts forever. It does not depend on fallible leaders serving a fallible nation elected by fallible citizens. In the kingdom of God, we have a truly benevolent dictator that is infallible and eternally loving, whose kingdom will not end. Much ink has been spilt on discussing the potential fall of Western civilization, of which Christianity has in part helped shape. But as Christians, our eternal citizenship is in the kingdom of God, which will never falter, fade, or fail. For we are not kept by our own efforts or our own plans, but by the creator of the universe. The kingdoms of this world will all eventually falter, fade, and ultimately fail. Our hope is not in them, but in the eternal kingdom of God. In Hebrews 12, 1-2, we see similar language used as Colossians 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1-2 draws the Christian to the eternal, not the temporal, by highlighting the church triumphant in heaven, looking down on the church militant, seeking to glorify God in their brief time on earth. In light of this eternal reality, our lives on earth are now Christ's, as Romans 12, 1 puts it, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or as Galatians 2.20 puts it, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We who have been united with Christ no longer live, but our lives are now Christ's. Our life is a living, breathing, God-glorifying sacrifice unto him. Our hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. In this temporal life on earth, we live in that reality and hope. We look to the day that we will be with him in glory. In the second portion of Colossians 3, we see how as Christians, now united with Christ, our relationship to sin has changed. A quote I once heard stated, As Christians, it is not as if we no longer sin in this life. It is that in, this, in our new life, our relationship with sin has changed. When we were dead in our sins, before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, our sins at best went unexamined and at worst were treasured. However, being made new through Christ's atoning death on the cross, we now hate the sin we used to be ambivalent about. It is worth noting that Paul emphasizes the sin that is in us, that which is earthly. Again, pointing to the importance of, the, of our eternal faith and drawing the distinction between the temporal and the eternal. These earthly desires are to be put to death. The great English Puritan John Owen once stated that we should be actively killing sin or it will be killing us. Important in this conversation is that all sin is idolatrous, meaning that we are actively worshiping something else when we sin. The sin of pride in my own life is no different in terms of idolatry than the Israelites bowing down before earthen-created images. In that circumstance, I am worshiping myself as God. This idolatry deserves God's holy, just wrath. Being united with Christ, that payment and punishment for my sin was poured out on our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, dying for all my sins, past, present, and future. Christ died for all his elect sins in a corporate sense, but also for our specific individual sins. When I all too often think of my own needs above others, that sin was nailed to the cross of Christ. When I love something on earth, more than the eternal, that sin was also nailed to the cross. Paul draws a distinction in the life before Christ and the life in Christ, using the terminology of the old self and the new self. Paul identifies the practices of the old self or the sin patterns that are in each one of us in our own lives. The antidote to these sin practices is knowledge of God leading to love of God. One of the most famous sermons in the last 500 years of the Protestant church is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, preached by Thomas Chalmers. Uh, he was known as Scotland's greatest 19th century churchman. He was an economist, was very concerned about the poor in the inner cities of uh, Scotland, and was a major factor in the creating of the Free Church of Scotland. Though his language used is a little less romantic than ours would be, the central thesis of his sermon is that we cannot get rid of sins in our lives by biting down on a mouthpiece and grinding it out. It is through the knowledge and love of God that we can eliminate sins from our lives. I think many of us in this room have had similar experiences. When I think of the besetting sin in my life that I am unable to break through my own will, that has hindered me for years in my walk with Christ, it was only through continuing to grow in love with God that produced any progress. 
It was through seeing my own cosmic rebellion of my sin and seeking to know God deeper than that that produced any further sanctification. Ultimately, we eradicate sin in this life by growing in knowledge and love of God. While there's wisdom in creating checks, balances, and boundaries in our lives to put, to put us in a position to obey God, no amount of internet controls, accountability partners, recitation of rosaries, or any other man-made sanctification tool will produce the fruit that comes from the root of loving God. We need to know and love God. Our old self loved our sin. Our new self loves God. We must live into our new self. In the third portion of Colossians 3, we receive instructions on how we are to live with the body of Christ as those united to Christ. Paul begins with an emphasis that there are no first-class citizens in the kingdom of God. In the context of the apostolic church, many Christians still struggled with the fact that Gentiles were to be viewed the same way as Jews in the church. This must have been a very pervasive view and a problem throughout the apostolic church, considering so many books in the New Testament address this issue. When we turn to Revelation 7, we see John, he's sitting in front of the throne of God and an innumerable amount of people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages are before the throne room of God. There is no aristocracy in the kingdom of God. There are God's people and the reprobate. While this played out between the Jew and Gentile in Colossae, it should cause us to examine our own views and practices to make sure that we have not created a de facto aristocracy within the church of God. Whether this be based on class, race, culture, views on solutions to our society's problems, or anything else that the heart of man can create. Turning it back on us a little bit, it may be worth reminding ourselves as Reformed Christians that while we should continue to zealously seek knowledge of God, It does not elevate us to a Christian in the aristocracy of the kingdom of God. We are no more redeemed than the simple Christian that only understands their own sin and has faith in Christ's salvific work on the cross for their redemption. This does not negate the need, as previously outlined in verse 10, to pursue knowledge of God, as that is what leads us to true love of God. Rather, it simply means that man is adept at taking anything even the good things that are commanded of us and creating partiality with it. Paul moves into the specifics of putting on the new man and the life of the new man. This is rooted in in God's initiating work and our identity with Christ, being chosen, holy, and loved. It is God that creates in us the new man. He chooses us. He is the one who makes us holy, and he is the one who loves us. We get into, now we get into the nitty-gritty of life in the church. Complaints. As sinners in need of a Savior and growing in sanctification brought about the Holy Spirit in our lives, we still have disagreements amongst each other and complaints amongst ourselves. We look to the day when we are able to perfectly live, and sanctify, live sanctified in glory, in perfect unity, as citizens of the kingdom of God, but for now, we still live in a fallen world. As Paul tells us how to deal with these issues amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, he tells us that we are to tell as many people as we can about the complaint, to curry support, and to put pressure on the person. No, that is not what he says. 
we are told to forgive one another. We do have mechanisms outlined in Scripture on how to confront brothers and sisters in Christ, found in Matthew 18. However, we are implored to forgive, knowing that we have been forgiven so much more. I've often thought about how our interactions in the church bear some similarities to marriage. Every human involved is a sinner, and we are stuck together. There is no perfect marriage, and there is no perfect church. When it comes to our own sanctification, there is fantastic beauty in this reality. Those of us who are married have probably all been sanctified by the living in close community with a fellow sinner in need of a Savior. Church is similar to this in that it's an opportunity to have our idols and sins put before us in close community. In the life of the church, our focus should be on the enormous sin we have committed against a holy God, and then we can properly see and forgive those who have sinned against us. We are to put on love, putting others' good above ourselves. We learn how to love one another from the Bible. We are to be a people of the book. As Christians, we are to be Bible people. Our questions about life in this temporal age are raised from the Bible. They're answered from the Bible. And we are given hope from the Bible. We are to marinate in it, teach from it, sing it, and admonish one another in the scriptures in wisdom for the good of others. We are a scripture-centric people, thankful to God for his special revelation in the Bible. Lastly, Paul gives us instructions on how to glorify God in our daily lives. The primary thrust of this passage is that to live out of the authority structures that God has put in place over us. There's care and safety in authority. One lie that our culture tells us is that authority structures are inherently inequitable. Paul would not contradict himself a few sentences later. God's word has already spoken about there being no aristocracy in the kingdom of God, that we are all equal in the sight of God. These authority structures mentioned in Colossians 3 do not create a system of inequality, but one of order. In God's infinite wisdom, he puts structures to care for people, in the church, in governments, in families, etc. A very similar list to Colossians 3 is found in Ephesians 5 and 6, between wives and husbands, children and parents, bondservants and masters. Interestingly enough, these chapters have other similarities to Colossians 3. Love because we have been loved in Ephesians 5, and in Colossians 3, forgiving because we have been forgiven. Both state putting putting sin to death because we are new creatures. The emphasis of singing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in the life of the church, and the emphasis on the eternal rather than the temporal. These structures bring imperfect safety in this temporal age. The absence of perfect safety in these authority structures should not lead us to abandon all authority. As noted previously, we serve a benevolent dictator that is perfect in all he does. And if you are in him, united with Christ, one day we will live in perfect safety, worshiping him for all eternity. In this present age, we are to live out of the authority structures that God has put in place over us. Whether we are in authority or under authority, as this is glorifying to God. As Christians, we know that while the day-to-day struggle can seem meaningless, Rather, we seek to glorify the one that created the world, saved his people, 
and will come again. In this life, our goal is to glorify God in all that we do, in every area of life, and to enjoy Him forever. As we close, if you are in Him, let us remember our union with Christ, what He has done for us, and how we are to live in light of this union. Now, and if you aren't sure if you are united to him, if your heart's desire is not to follow after him, if this life is about you and not him, I would issue a warning and in the same breath hope. The bad news is that you, like all people, are in sin and unable to work your way out of it. The good news is that there is one who accomplished everything required for your salvation. That one is Christ, who lived the perfect life on earth that we could not, who died on the cross for the sins of his people, paid the debt we owed, who rose from the grave conquering death, and will come again. Cast yourself upon the mercy seat of God, confessing your sins to him, knowing that he is your only hope, and put your faith in Christ and his work. We sit here not as morally good people, but regenerated people having our hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit, our hearts regenerated from stone to flesh. These hearts of flesh regenerated by the Holy Spirit now beat for him and delight in him. Our only hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let us dwell in what Christ has done and how we ought to live in light of who we now are, children of the creator of the universe and citizens of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for all of your work in redemptive history, for your covenant of redemption, choosing a people to save, not because of their own merits, and bringing us unto you. We pray that we would marinate on the transformative realities of our union with Christ, and that we would live accordingly, that you would draw us to you, and that we would never forget that we need you. Give us strength as we walk in this pilgrim land, in this temporal age, that we would focus on eternity and live in light of that eternity. It is in the name of your Son, in whom we are united to, that we pray. Amen.